Welcome to One Chapel. We're a family of neighborhood churches in the Austin area. Our vision is to help people move from where they are to where God wants them to be. It's a place to connect, grow, and serve the communities where we live. You can learn more about One Chapel and how to get involved at onechapel.com. And now, here's this week's message. As we get started here this afternoon, I just want to take a moment and I want to take you back to the springtime. Can you remember that far back? <laughs> it's about eight weeks ago or so. People are still cleaning up from South by Southwest. Schools are still in session. Parents rejoiced. The low around here was about 58 degrees. I wouldn't mind going back to that. It was April 21st, 2019. It was Easter Sunday. It's a day where we all gather together to celebrate the resurrected King Jesus. It was also the week where a few of our kids ate way too many peeps after the Easter egg hunts and crashed in a major sugar coma. It was disastrous. But if we could get in a time machine today real quick and just go back to Easter Sunday, right here at One Chapel, if you were here, you might remember that we asked a simple question. What is the most relatable symbol in the Christian faith? Is it the manger? manger where a tiny baby Jesus was born, the first and last being to ever walk the earth that was fully human and yet somehow also fully God. Maybe it's the cross. You know, it's the, the symbol that today is perched on top of our hospitals, churches. It's the symbol that you'll see as you walk around the city of Austin, tattooed on people's arms and on necklaces around their neck. And actually, that, of course, is a symbol of death that Jesus transformed into a symbol of hope and life. I mean, that idea right there, death to life, it's at the core of the gospel story. The cross is certainly one of the most iconic and important symbols in the Christian faith. But it's not exactly relatable, you know? I mean, today, there's, there's no everyday use for a cross as a device of capital punishment. In fact, it hasn't been used that way since the fall of the Roman Empire. A somewhat lesser iconic Christian image is the table, where Jesus sat with his disciples during the Last Supper. And the truth is, I think, that a table is incredibly relatable. It's so relatable that we see it everywhere we look in popular culture. Like most of you will remember, there's a, there's a lost Last Supper. There is a Star Wars Last Supper. And of course, there's the ever popular cereal mascots Last Supper. You've probably seen some of those from time to time. A table is so relatable because it's where we gather together, you know? We use a table today just like we did 2,000 years ago. We gather around it for, for meals. We gather around it with friends and neighbors and sometimes enemies. You've got to have the in-laws over every now and again. Just for the record, I have great in-laws. For the podcast, I have great in-laws. I want that to be known. <laughs> if you remember Easter Sunday, we asked this question, what would the Last Supper look like if it happened today? In 2019, in our time and in our culture, what would it look like? We demonstrated how the gospel story invites everybody to come to the table. Jesus says, everybody is welcome at his table. Everybody can find life and redemption at his table. So we're starting a new series today, and we're simply calling it 
at the table. But in this series, we're going to try to go a little bit deeper. I don't know if you realize it or not, but Jesus sat across the table from a lot of different kinds of people. He sat with a wealthy and vertically challenged tax collector in Zacchaeus. He sat with a woman with five ex-husbands. And he sat with a group of men who were so convinced that he was dead that Jesus had to eat fish in front of them just to prove he wasn't a ghost. So through the gospel writers of Luke and John, we're going to take a look at who Jesus sat with at various tables and explore what all of those encounters were really like. And from this, we hope to learn from Jesus how a common meal can lead to an uncommon miracle. And I believe it can. How a simple conversation can lead to a supernatural transformation in all of our lives. So as we're launching Supper for Six groups over the summer and lots of different kinds of summer groups, we're going to discover together how we can turn an ordinary meal into an extraordinary act of love and grace. We're going to consider how a table can be turned into an opportunity, a place of vulnerability for us and a bridge to understanding one another. And the stories that we'll read over the course of these next several weeks, they're actual encounters with Jesus. They're not fairy tales. So I want to invite you to come to the table. I want to encourage you to gather at your own table and invite somebody else as we grow in the sharing of our lives with each other at the table. So I want you to open your Bibles if you have them or, or turn on your Bibles probably to Luke chapter 22, verse 14. Or you can just look up here at the screen. And I want us to take a look a little more closely at what happened at the Last Supper that we've been talking about. So we begin to look at how Jesus met other people at the table and what then happened as a result because transformation is happening there. We're going to start in verse 14. It says, When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table. And he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. And after taking the cup, he gave thanks and he said, Take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, he gave thanks, he broke it, and he gave it to them saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood which is poured out for you. But the hand of him who's going to betray me is with mine on the table. The Son of Man will go as it has been decreed, but woe to the man who betrays him. They begin to question among themselves which of them it might be who would do this. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was considered to be greatest. Jesus said to them, The kings of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. But you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest, and the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who is at the table? But I, I am among you as one who serves. You are those who have stood by me in my trials, and I confer on you a kingdom, just as my Father conferred one on me, so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. So much happening, so much love, so much confrontation, so much transformation happening here at the table. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we love you and we thank you for the table and that we are invited. Today we ask that you would teach us and train us and help us to understand what you are doing and 
how we can participate with you at your table. Jesus, we love you and we thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. And everybody said a good, strong amen. I wonder if you remember uh, these bracelets that kind of passed around, I don't know, maybe the 90s, or early 2000s. They were a little cloth bracelet, and it, it just said WWJD. You guys remember those? What would Jesus do? Anybody wearing one of those, by chance? Just going really old school? No? You got one on? But you have one. All right, well, we're going to need you to wear that next time. It would have been so much more effective for me, but no, I'm just kidding. Some of you still, some of you still have those, and, um, and it means what would Jesus do, right? What, what would Jesus do? And that's an interesting question, but I, I kind of think in some ways it's a little bit unhelpful because the truth is we don't know what Jesus would do today. Jesus was a single male Jewish rabbi in the 21st century. So how do you bring that into our culture today? So you start asking the questions, well, how would Jesus Instagram? I'm not sure that we know that, and I'm not sure how to answer that question. How would Jesus Netflix? I don't know. Would he lose a day and a half of his life? I'm guessing no, but I'm not sure exactly what he would do. How would Jesus drive on I-35? I think he would just, poof, he would just appear on the next place and just avoid it completely. At least that's what I would do. But you see, it doesn't always work. Like, like if you're a mom, how would Jesus breastfeed? Like, it doesn't make sense. I'm not trying to be crude or crass. I'm just trying to illustrate the idea. It doesn't always work when we try to bring that forward today. So I think that a far better question is, what would Jesus do if he were me? What would Jesus do if he was a high school student? What would Jesus do if he was a college student? Or instead, if he was a woman? Or if he was running a business? Like, what would Jesus do if he were me? And I think this is a particularly important question for us to ask today because sociologists will tell you and theologians will tell you, people who are way smarter than me will tell you that we live in a post-Christian culture. And that freaks people out initially. You don't have to be too freaked out about it, but they've, they've kind of divided our culture, our history, into three different segments. Right? There, there's a pre-Christian culture, there was a Christian culture, and then there was a post-Christian culture. And it doesn't necessarily mean that we've moved on from Christian culture, moved away from Christianity. In fact, as you look around our world today, you'll see that so many of our values, so many of our morals, they find their roots in Jesus. You think about justice, you think about equality, that stuff comes from Jesus. But the thing that we have to understand about a post-Christian culture is, is that it's really a reaction against what they believe was Christian culture. It's a knee-jerk response. It's kind of like our culture having a rebellious teenage moment, pushing back on what was. So that's why I think so many of our friends and family who don't follow Jesus are far more, op are far more open to other kinds of spirituality, open to the spirituality of, of yoga or quasi-Buddhist mindfulness or, or different things in our, in our region today that we see people are very spiritual they're oftentimes more open to that than they are to the way of Jesus. I think that's why people are often, they seem to be more open to Islam or Judaism than they are to the way of Jesus. And you see it, it's because it's a bit of a reactionary thing that's happening. And honestly, I think as a pastor, I believe that we have sometimes, as the body of Christ, given them a reason to push back. It's my opinion that we haven't always handled what we're supposed to, speaking the truth in love to the very best of our ability. We've done a great job a lot of times of speaking the truth to people and telling them what they need to fix. Uh, or we've done a good job often of just loving people. It doesn't matter who you are or what you're doing. Jesus just loves you and Jesus does. But we haven't really quite nailed the speaking the truth of God to people in a way that's loving and caring. 
So even if some people aren't hostile towards Jesus in the church, I think there's just a million other things to do on a Sunday morning or Sunday afternoon, you know? Like, we live in an amazing region, everybody. I mean, over and over and over again, Austin is highest. It is number one on the list of best places to live. Have you seen this? We live in the best place. Like, it's amazing. Every time it shows up, they talk about the, the, the financial part of it, the economic uh, blessings and the, the, the recreation part. And it's just amazing what we've got going on around here. So, so I want to go to the lake sometimes on a Sunday. I don't ever do that, but oftentimes I want to. I want to gather some friends and go to brunch. Like, there's a lot of other things that we can do. Listen to this. Rosaria Butterfield, in her book called The Gospel Comes with a House Key, she says it like this. Let's face it. We have become unwelcome guests in this post-Christian world. Our children ride their scooters in neighborhoods where conservative Christianity is dismissed or denounced as irrelevant, irrational, discriminatory, and dangerous. Many of us go to work in places where sensitivity training has become an Orwellian nightmare. Christian common sense is declared hate speech by the new keepers of this culture. The old rules don't apply anymore. Many Christians genuinely do not know what to say to their unbelieving neighbors. The language and the logic have changed almost overnight. I don't know about you, but I feel like I've really experienced this. This has happened in my lifetime. The, 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 the old rules, the old conversations, it used to be one way and now it's another way. And it's been so disorienting. And so the question then becomes, what are we supposed to do? And how do we invite people to the table of Jesus? How do we invite people to follow Jesus along with us in a culture that's post-Christian? I mean, most of you here today, you've had some kind of experience with the life of God. He's done an amazing miracle in your heart, and you've been set free and delivered, and you found love and freedom, and it's filled you up, and you just want to give that over to your family and your friends. You want them to participate in what you're doing. But how do you invite people into that life in a culture where there's hostility? Where it's not PC to believe the things that you believe. Where it's not PC to say the things that you want to say. And so we just kind of walk around feeling weird. We feel scared. Or we feel awkward. Anybody experience this with me? Yeah, me too. A lot. So one option is, is that we just don't. We don't do it. We don't talk about it. We just become hermits in our own houses and apartments. We drive in and pull the shades. At work, we just kind of keep our heads down and don't say anything. I don't want to ruffle any feathers. I don't want to cause any problems. Actually, I had an experience like this in the first year that we moved to Austin. Most of you know the story of us coming from Colorado, and we came out of a church that experienced a really difficult scandal. And that guy, that pastor that that scandal was around, he ended up in some documentaries, and he ended up in one particular documentary, documentary that traveled around a bit, and it, didn't, it just didn't paint him in a very good light. And so I'm sitting, getting my hair cut at Floyd's Barbershop on Brody. I'm sitting in the chair, and this woman has scissors at my head. Scissors and razors around my head. And she starts going off on that documentary and on that pastor, like a five-minute tirade. Talking about, oh, can you believe this? And he said this, and I can't believe this. And, and I'm sitting there, and I have a decision to make because I worked for that guy. And so I'm sitting in the chair, and she has scissors at my head, and I'm deciding, what am I going to do now? And so she finished her tirade, and I said, you want to know something really crazy? <laughs> she was like, what? And I said, I used to work for that guy. And she was like, what? And we had an amazing conversation about faith 
and what Christianity really is, and she didn't hurt me in any way, shape, or form. It was a good conversation. But oftentimes, we're scared to take the leap. Another option is that we just try to edit the way of Jesus for other people. You know, I'm just going to cut out the parts of the Bible that I think aren't really PC and don't really fit along with current culture. It's so progressive, and so in order to keep up with everybody, I just got to edit some of the way of Jesus so that it'll be tolerable for people. And by the way, that PC stuff that we want to edit, it really changes every five years or so anyway, so it's really, really hard to keep up with. So are these our only options? I don't think they are. I think there's a third option. And I think it surpasses our trends, and I think it surpasses our culture, and I think it goes all the way back to the time of Jesus. So I want to talk to you about that today. And I want to thank a pastor that we've leaned on for this. His name is John Mark Comer. He's an incredible theologian and thinker. And he's really crystallized these thoughts that we're sharing across our campuses today. So it's pretty awesome. So we're going to go to Luke chapter 7, 34. And here's what it says. The Son of Man came eating and drinking. Everybody say amen. The Son of Man came eating and drinking. And you say, here's a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Whoa, that's pretty heavy immediately. But I just want you to focus on the first two things, eating and drinking. Eating and drinking. The Son of Man came eating and drinking. For most of us, we read this, and it just kind of goes over our heads. We read the following rebuke, and so we just ignore it. Well, yeah, he's eating and drinking. He was human and fully God. He had to live, didn't he? So what does this have to do with anything? But, but the question I want to ask you is, why is it in here? Why does it say in the Scriptures that the Son of Man came eating and and drinking like nothing in scripture is wasted so why is this noteworthy for us one of the major reasons why the idea of eating and drinking doesn't really impact us the way that it used to is because meals meant a lot more in jesus time than they do in our time we've lost the power and the impact that meals have in our lives I mean, you just think about it. Most families don't sit together and have a meal uh, if they do during the evenings in a week it's very rare I read a study that said so, the, so many families in our culture, they eat at least one meal a week in the car on the way to something else, which means that we're eating a lot of fast food, which is horrible and delicious and wonderful for us. And we're spending a lot of time doing that. So it's kind of broken down the power of the meal. But meals have the power to bring people together. And meals have the power to bring people apart. Look at author Mary Douglas. She said in her book, Boundary Markers, she said, meals bring people together but also keep them apart. Think of the pre-civil rights restaurants in the South. The no black signs on the front door. Or in England, no blacks, no Irish, no dogs. Even, our, even in our laid-back, open-minded, progressive cities, still as a general rule, most of us eat with people who are friends and family. Most of us eat with people who are like us who fall into the same basic socioeconomic stratum as us, who are of the same ethnicity as us. Now, this is true of all societies, but was especially true of first-century Jewish society. New Testament scholars called this idea table fellowship. Will you say it with me? Table fellowship. So let me give you a little backstory on this. 400 years before Jesus, most of you will be aware of the idea that the people of Israel, they were dragged away into exile in Babylon. And when that happened... The temple, the center of faith for them, the center of life for them was destroyed, which meant that the center of Jewish faith was obliterated. Right? The sacrificial system that you'll be aware of in the Old Testament, the sacrificial system was put to an end, and the priesthood is effectively wiped out. So now imagine, you're in exile, you're in Babylon. What are you supposed to do with this? 
how do you obey all of the commands of the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament? How do you do all of that? I mean, have you read those, everybody? There's a lot of rules and regulations in there and stuff that they were supposed to do. So how do you even begin to obey even half of those commands with no temple, no sacrifices, and no priests? Well, the short answer is you can't do it. It's impossible. You can't do it. So what the rabbis had to do was the rabbis had to be a little ingenious, and they had to come up with a new way. They had to reorient the faith. They had to reinvent it a little bit so they could do this in exile. So here's what they said. They said, okay, now your home is now the new temple. The table is the new altar. The father of the house is the new priest. And the meal is now the sacrifice. You see it? That's pretty cool, I think. I, I can get down with that. I think it's great. It's ingenuity. It's creativity. It's, it's reworking the problem. I like that. And the Pharisees then come along, and they say, remember, they're not always bad. They, they, they were trying to do some good. They came along saying, look, everybody, what got us all into exile was sin. What's going to get us out of exile is less sin, <laughs> or better yet, no sin. That would actually be the best case scenario. So there was this idea that if all of Israel would just not sin for 24 hours, if everybody could just do everything in the Torah for 24 hours, then perhaps the Messiah would come and they would be delivered. Isn't that, isn't that interesting? And so you fast forward a little bit, 400 years to the time of Jesus. Jesus shows up, and even so, some of the Israelites, they were back in Israel, and the temple was restored, Two-thirds of the Jewish people were still out there scattered abroad. Now, I see your eyes glazing over at this history lesson, so just stay with me for another second. We'll, we'll get somewhere in a moment. So two-thirds are still scattered abroad. Only one-third of the Jewish people are actually back in Israel, and all of those Jews are under Roman rule. So in essence, to them, they're just saying, we're still in exile. It's still the same thing. So how do we get out of this? And so the Pharisees, what they decided was, we're going to up the ante a little bit. And they called every person, every Jew, listen to this, every Jew to live by the commands of the priests in the temple. The strict commands of the priests in the temple. Remember, your home is the new temple. Your table is the new altar. Your meal is the new sacrifice. And so at first glance, this seems good, right? I mean, more holiness. I like more holiness. I could use a little more holiness. More holiness is good. I could get down with that. But if you know the commands, there's tons of rules, tons of regulations, including the command that no Gentile could ever sit at your table. It wasn't allowed. No Gentile could ever come and sit at your table. Anybody with special needs, according to the, the old rules and regulations, anybody with special needs they actually couldn't come to your table. Anybody that had a deformity of some kind, they wouldn't be able to come and sit at your table. You wouldn't do that. And for sure, somebody who was a quote-unquote sinner, somebody who didn't follow the Torah, they couldn't come and sit at your table either. Why is this such a big deal? Jesus comes eating and drinking and sitting down at meals with all of those kinds of people. Jesus comes and reaches to all of those outcasts, people on the margin. So because of all that stuff, that I, the whole history lesson that I just gave to you, a rabbi in that culture would never be caught dead eating a meal with a drunkard or a tax collector or a prostitute or a sinner. 
And as you read through the scriptures, you will see Jesus doing that very thing over and over and over again. New Testament commentator Scott Barchi, he says this, It would be difficult to overestimate the importance of table fellowship for the cultures of the Mediterranean basin in the first century of our era. Mealtimes were far more than occasions for individuals to consume nourishment. Being welcomed at a table for the purpose of eating food with another person had become a ceremony richly symbolic of friendship and intimacy and unity. Thus, betrayal or unfaithfulness toward anyone with whom one had shared the table was viewed as particularly reprehensible. On the other hand, when persons were estranged, a meal invitation (laughs) opened the way to reconciliation. This is what Jesus is doing. One German theologian says it like this, in the East, even today, to invite someone to a meal is an honor. It's an honor of peace and trust and brotherhood and forgiveness. In short, Sharing a table means sharing life together. In Judaism in particular, table fellowship meant fellowship before God. The eating of a piece of broken bread by everyone who shares in a meal brings out the fact that they all have a share in the blessing spoken over the unbroken bread. The inclusion of sinners in table fellowship is an inclusion in the community of salvation. To them, it was the most meaningful expression of the redeeming love of God. Do you see it? What Jesus came doing, eating and drinking, and what he did often was unheard of. And it was absolutely radical. Here it is, Luke 7, 34. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and you say, he's a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. So over the next several weeks, what we're going to do is we're going to look at seven different times that Jesus, he sat down at a meal with other people, all sorts of people, people in that culture who were deemed to be untouchable which is the reason why Jesus got this reputation, right? It's why they called him a drunkard and a sinner. He he wasn't that, of course. We know that he wasn't that, a a glutton and a drunkard. But listen, there's a reason why they were saying that about him. In the Gospel of Luke alone, there are over 50 references to Jesus and food. Like, that's amazing. In the Gospel of Matthew, there are 94 references to Jesus and food, In fact, New Testament scholar Robert Karras, he says, in Luke's gospel, Jesus is either going to a meal, he's at a meal, or he's coming from a meal. Look, everybody, I like this Jesus. I want to hang out with this Jesus. I think this Jesus likes tacos. I think this Jesus eats queso. I want to be a disciple of this Jesus. But one scholar proposed Jesus got himself killed by the people that he ate with because he ate with all the wrong people kinds of people see for jesus meals weren't a boundary marker meals weren't a place to say we're in and and you're out as they were for everybody else meals were a sign of god's great welcome into his kingdom they weren't a way to keep everybody out they were a way to invite people in if you look at luke chapter 19 verse 10 it says for the son of man came to seek and to save what was lost does that sound a little familiar to you we just read in Luke 7, 34, it sounds very similar, doesn't it? The Son of Man came, and it's used not once in the book of Luke, but twice. There's Luke 19, 10, the Son of Man came to seek and save what was lost. And Luke 7, 34, the Son of Man came eating and drinking. What I want to propose to you today is that Luke 19, 10 describes Jesus' mission in the earth. Seek and save the lost is Jesus' mission. That's what he came to do. That's who he is. That's what he's doing. But Luke 7, 34 describes Jesus' method. Eating 
and drinking is Jesus' method. In other words, this is how he did the seeking and the saving. Now, I've lost some of you. Oh, come on, man. Seriously? He's coming and just eating with people, and, and that's, that's what he did? That's what we're supposed to do? Yeah, that's the argument that I'm making today. If I've lost some of you, just look at some of the references in Matthew with me, would you? In chapter 2, he's born in a feeding trough, everybody, signifying that he is food for the world, all right? It starts big at the beginning. Chapter 5, he's over at dinner at Levi's house, the tax collectors. In chapter 7, he's at dinner at Simon the Pharisee's house. In chapter 9, he's feeding the 5,000. Thank you very much. In chapter 10, he's with Mary and Martha at a meal. In chapter 11, he's at dinner with the Pharisees again. In chapter 14, he says, hey, when you throw a party, I want you to invite the poor to come. In chapter 15, he tells the stories of the prodigal sons. And it ends with, yeah, a big fat meal. In chapter 16, the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, the rich man who ate like a king. 19, it's dinner at Zacchaeus' house. 22, chapter 22, it's the Last Supper. Chapter 24, the road to Emmaus, where at the end of that journey, he goes in, he breaks bread with people, and they recognize him, and he vanishes. And then he shows up again at the disciples, and he says, hey, do you guys have some fish I need to eat? Jesus lived in a culture where people at times were hostile and they kept him at arm's length. So how did Jesus invite and bring people into his kingdom? And the answer, I think, is one meal at a time. This was, for a lack of a better word, his method of evangelism. And when I say that word for some of you, it turns you off right away. Evangelism. Oh, I don't want to talk about that in 2019. It just reminds me of, it reminds me of the, the robocalls that I receive all day long on my cell phone. People just intruding into my life and the lives of others. Right? It makes me think about walking down the corridor of the mall and those booths, those carts along the way, and they're trying to trick you to come over to their booth by handing you something. Have you ever gotten stuck by those people? You're walking, they're like, hey, and they hand you a pen or something. You're like, oh, thanks a lot, before you could think about it. And you're like, ah! Well, I'd like to tell you a few things. If that's your job, by the way, hey, I'm glad you're making some money. Good for you. We love and support and appreciate you. You know, go get that bread or whatever you say today. But, uh, but, but, but I just, that's what it conjures up for me. It makes me think of going over to somebody's house and you're just having a meal with some friends. And then you didn't realize it, but it's actually a network marketing scheme. And so after the appetizers, they're like, hey, I'd like to tell you about an opportunity. Like, I thought we were friends, bro. Like, what are, you, what are you doing? And it feels like a betrayal. It feels like you had ulterior motives. And so I know. When I say evangelism, that conjures that feeling up for some of you. I can tell you, because of the way and the, 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 the tradition that I grew up in, it kind of makes me feel that way a little bit. But don't shut it down just because you have that in you. Here's the thing. Jesus was constantly doing this. He was preaching and sharing the message of the wide availability of the kingdom of God to everybody. It's near it's here. It has come, and you can experience it, and you can have life and life to the full for each and every person. So if Jesus had a method of evangelism, don't get hung up on the language. If Jesus had a method of evangelism, the best I can tell from the Gospels is, if you're with a bunch of conservative and cultural Christians, you know, they, they mostly believe in God. They mostly believe the Bible. But maybe they've lost the plot line a little bit. They kind of got lost and they need to come back a little bit. 
they already know deep down that it's true. And so if you're meeting those kinds of people, then I think from Jesus' life, stand up in a crowd. Gather as many people as you can and preach to them the good news. But if you're with somebody who's out on the margins, if you're with somebody who doesn't quite fit in, if you're with somebody who's been wounded by people inside of a church, if you're with somebody who has been wounded by the family of God in some way and they don't don't want anything to do with organized religion, then I think from the life of Jesus, just open your home to them. If you don't have a home or a table, then then steal somebody else's table and have them pay for it and go do it. (laughs) That's what Jesus did with Zacchaeus. you'll, You'll see it in coming weeks. That's what he did. Get together with them. Eat a long meal. Break bread with them. Spend time just talking and sharing life together. Get together and don't drop it on the floor. It's gross. Don't, don't do that. Pour a glass of wine, and if, that's, if you do that kind of a thing, maybe you don't, but if you don't, sweet tea works as well, and so does Dr. Pepper, and actually you'd be surprised, water will work too. So just invite them in from the margins to your table and just spend some time and have a long-ranging conversation and be yourself, have small talk, just talk, show them that you love and care for them. You don't have to skip over that. And meet them exactly where they are, not where you think they should be. And by the end of this meal, I'm going to get you there by God. But just be yourself, be honest, share some of your life and story, hear theirs and where they're coming from. And eventually, over time, invite them to experience the life that you found in Jesus. No ulterior motives. Everything's out on the table. I just want to bring you in. I think from the scriptures, this is what Jesus was doing over and over and over again. Why don't you guys come on up? Like, this is it. That's it. The practice of eating and drinking at the table, it's central to the way of Jesus. That's the argument that I want to make with you today and the culture that I want to put inside of our family. The practice of eating and drinking at the table, it's central to the way of Jesus. It's not a side point, it's central. It's right there at the core of this whole Christian thing. Tragically, I think we've lost it in our culture today. We're hyper-individualistic. We do life alone. I'm good enough, I'm smart enough, doggone it, people like me. Like, I can do this whole thing on my own. And then with the way that we've planned our suburbs and the way that we've spread out in the region, you know how it is. Like, you, you have a hard, long day at work. I don't want to spend time doing other stuff. So you, you drive up to your house, pull into the driveway, you reach up and you push that magical button, opens the garage door, you glance over at your neighbor, hey, and you pull in and you reach up again and you push that magical button. And the garage door shuts behind you and you're off to your own meal and an evening of Netflix and whatever you want to do with your life. We've lost touch with this thing, and I think it's a tragedy. We've lost the importance and the power of sharing a meal with people, people who are on the margins. What if we were to recapture it? 
What if during our, our semester of Supper for Six, as we're just gathering around tables all across the region, what if, we stri- what if we strive to try to recapture this again? To pull back the ways of Jesus and be like Him. I think Jesus radically taught and showed God's invitation to people. Everybody's welcome at the table. And He did it through a common and ordinary meal. Breaking bread and drinking together. What we're tempted to do is to divorce our spirituality from our ordinary lives. Oh, I invite people to church because I want them to experience the life of God because Brent's going to get them. So I'll bring them to church, and that's, that's what, because I don't do that stuff during the week. Like, that's silly. Why don't I do that? It's, it's separate. I'm, I'm on church time now. Now I'm on work time. That's not what Jesus did. Jesus, he, 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 did, he took the holy and the common, and he mixed them together. For Jesus, it it was all the same thing. He was constantly intermingling the kingdom of God with the kingdoms of men. And actually, he challenged the religious leaders of the day for their hypocrisy and their separation and segregation. Jesus never disconnected God and life. Instead, he offered life with God. That's what he did. He consistently merged mystery and mundane. He introduced the power of God to the poorest of souls. Every interaction with people here on the earth was an opportunity to see heaven come down. And we desperately need to come to his table and relearn his ways, I think. Would you close your eyes for a second? Because I think that nowhere is this more profoundly and radically shown than at the meal that we started with, with the Last Supper. Even in a room full of people who would either run and hide, people who would deny they even knew him, some of them would betray him. It was in this room, at this table, at this meal, at the Last Supper, that Jesus starts making the connections between the old temple and the sacrifices and the priesthood of only a select few. And he connects all of that to the table fellowship where the Jews are supposed to somehow, some way, keep all the rules and regulations of the Torah. And he connects all of that to the incredible rescue plan that God had devised from the beginning. Where Jesus would become the temple. Where Jesus would become the high priest. And where Jesus would be the sacrifice all wrapped into one. So that he could then sacrifice his life for every single one of us. And we could learn from him, become like him, and do what he did. So with your heads bowed and eyes closed, we're going to end a little bit different here today. In just a moment, I'm going to ask you to participate and kind of practice for the first time. We're talking about eating and drinking and recapturing this. And so in the cafe area, we have it all set up. There's hors d'oeuvres and appetizers and things, nothing to spoil your meal. You just walk through, gather around a table with some people here and have some conversations and let the life of God fill them. Walk around a little bit, meet some of the Supper for Six people and other group leaders and find a place to connect for the summer, only the summer, no big commitment, connect for the summer where you can practice this idea, eating and drinking, Seeking and saving the lost. For some of you, though, that may feel like a challenge. And you need to remember today that Jesus showed up eating and drinking, seeking and saving you first. He made all the first moves, 
And I promise you, all you have to do is respond to him. Are you separated from him? Do you feel like you're out on the margins? Do you need to come in? I'm telling you that the price that Jesus paid on the cross and then rose again victorious, I'm telling you that's the way that you can be free from sin and you can have a relationship with God himself. And all it takes for you is to surrender your life to him today. And if that's you, I just want to help you with some words. You would pray and say something like this, Jesus, I'm choosing to believe in you. I don't want to live out here on my own. I want to be at your table. I want to experience the love that's being talked about today. I want to be found. So I believe in you. I believe in the cross. I believe you rose again. And today, I am giving you my life. Just say that to him. I'm giving you my life the best way I know how. Thank you for rescuing me. In Jesus' name. Thanks for joining us today. If God is doing something in your life or you're looking for ways to get connected, you can learn about groups, teams, and more at onechapel.com welcome. You can subscribe to future messages from One Chapel on your favorite podcast player. And of course, you're always invited to services every Sunday morning at 9.30 and 11.30. See you next time. Thank you.